we have been preaching on Sunday nights through the book of First uh, Peter, and um, the text uh, today is First Peter chapter three, verses thirteen. Technically, it's twenty-two, but I'm going to have us read into the first part of chapter four, verse one. Uh, before we dive in, I want to ask this question. If you have ever been to a uh, missions conference or heard a sermon on missions or read a missions book or heard anybody talk about missions, you may have heard reference to Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, which says, this is Jesus's words himself, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. That is a common phrase that people love to reference when it comes to missions because, hey, if we get at least one person from every nation, tribe, and tongue, we can usher in the kingdom of God. Christ will come back once we accomplish that. I have heard mission organizations and leaders of certain mission organizations, that was their claim, that was their belief. Let's send missionaries out everywhere we can so that once there is at least one believer in every nation, tribe, and come, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, the end will come once the gospel has spread to all of the nations. However, what they fail to do is they fail to look just five verses before in Matthew 24, verse 9. Jesus says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Jesus is talking about suffering. Jesus is talking about persecution. All of the nations will hate you. All of the nations are going to come against you. Then this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed through the whole world. In light of persecution, in light of being hated, the gospel will go forth and be preached and declared to all the world. Jesus' words tell us that we will suffer. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Persecution is a very common thing for most believers around the world, except for us here in America. It is a very rare thing for us to live this kind of lifestyle that we have. So the early church, for the first 300 years, they were persecuted, they were ostracized, they lost jobs, they lost family members, they lost homes, and eventually they started losing their lives as the Roman Empire started killing Christians, trying to get rid of them, doing whatever they could to discourage people from following Jesus. Throughout history, there have been ebbs and flows, depending on where you've been, um, on what kind of life that you live. But the Christian life is one that is commonly marked with suffering. The book of 1 Peter addresses suffering. The, the title of our sermon series through 1 Peter, since we started over a year ago, um, is God's Elect in a Strange Land. So Peter is writing to um, his audience, believers scattered in Asia Minor, so uh, what we know as Turkey and in that area today. 
He is writing to them to encourage them through their suffering, to encourage them to live for Jesus Christ in light of everything that is going on. So the Reformation Study Bible has a great breakdown of um, the layout of 1 Peter, which I wanted to um, have up here just so that we could all see that. Um, They break it down. The very first two verses are just a greeting. And then um, chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, uh, the theme is the Christian's sure salvation. Then Peter moves into um, 1 13 through 3.12, which is the passage right before what we're going to be preaching on and studying this morning, the implications of this sure salvation, personal holiness, reverent fear, mutual love, membership in a spiritual community, the Christian and social relationships. So how do you, how do you relate to the government? How do you relate to the world? How do you relate to each other? How do you relate in marriage? So Peter goes on to describe, because of this salvation, here is how you are to live. Here's how you are to think of your life and process daily living. And then, starting in chapter 3, verse 13, through the rest of the book, he's really going to talk about suffering and what it means to suffer for the glory of God. So our our passage that we are going to um, read this morning begins... In chapter 3, verse 13, the apostle writes, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. This is the word of the Lord. So, after talking through our salvation and how we should live, Peter then asks this question. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? What does Peter mean here by who is there to harm you? Is Peter really saying that, hey, if you are zealous for what is good, if you are living rightly in what I have talked about and talked through at the beginning of my letter, if you live this way, who's going to harm you? No one will persecute you. 
No pain will come upon you. You won't suffer. Is that what Peter's getting at? I don't believe so. I see some head shaking no on that, and um, I believe you are right as well. Peter knows for a fact that the people that he is writing to are suffering. They are being persecuted. Yes, they are going to face social persecution. They are going to face physical persecution. But ultimately, there will not be any harm that comes to them. Peter, at the very beginning of his letter, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who is there that can harm you if your inheritance is kept in heaven? Who is there to harm you if you are being guarded by God? God's power is guarding you, is keeping you. Who is there to harm you? Peter's question here, yeah, they can take your stuff. Yeah, they can hurt your body. They can't ultimately harm you because you are kept for God. God's power is securing you and keeping you safe. Verse 14, Peter says, but even if you should suffer, so he's acknowledging, yes, you will suffer. But notice that it's not just any suffering that Peter's talking about. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. So you are living in a righteous way. You are living your life in a way that honors Christ, and yet you experience suffering. Peter then says, you will be blessed. How in the world can Peter say suffering is a blessing? That doesn't make any sense. I don't know if you've gone through any kind of suffering in your life, whether it was because you are faithfully following Christ or because calamity has struck, sickness has struck, other kinds of issues have come upon, suffering is not fun. And calling it a blessing, Peter sounds like he's um, a little out there. But Peter is referencing Jesus Christ. In Matthew chapter 5, at the very end of the Beatitudes, uh, Jesus himself says, chapter 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, which is exactly what Peter has said here. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you. So Peter is going to use this word revile again in just a few more verses in his letter. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, 
for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution should not be a shock when it comes. Persecution, when it comes because we are faithfully following after Jesus Christ, Christ's promise that you will be blessed. Peter says, your inheritance is kept in heaven. It is being guarded by God. You are being protected by God. So ultimately, no harm will fall upon you. And that is a comforting thing. Peter goes on to say, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Yes, people are going to come against you. Yes, things are going to be hard. Things are going to be terrible, maybe. But don't fear them. Don't fear them. Fear the Lord. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Stands out to me just the phrase, in your hearts. Peter is driving at what is often referred to as heart posture. How are we really thinking and acting? Peter doesn't care about the outward appearance, right? at least in this part. Right now, Peter is really addressing the heart of the problem. What is going on in your heart? Outwardly, we can come to church, we can be around friends like, yeah, things are going great. Yeah, things are fine. But inwardly, we can be so angry with God and we can be so upset with God over everything that's, that's happening. Peter is saying, honor Christ your Lord as holy in your hearts. Focus your attention on him because he is good, because he loves you, because your inheritance is kept in heaven. So honor him in your hearts. Peter is drawing upon Isaiah chapter 8 uh, and a couple of, and chapter 2 in his letter, um, he already references Isaiah chapter 8. Um, and then he is referencing it again here. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, God is speaking to Isaiah and tells Isaiah to say these words. The Lord says through Isaiah, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Yes, the world is going to rage. The world is going to go mad and go crazy, and the world will hate you, as Jesus said. All the nations will hate you. We may very well have a new government that one day comes into America and we may start suffering different kinds of persecution. Do I think it may come like it is in the Middle East where Christians are murdered? No, it could happen. I don't know. I can't see into the future. But regardless of what happens, it doesn't matter whether new laws are passed that limit what we can do, that attack us, that tear us down, That's not our primary concern. Our primary concern is pursuing Christ, living for Christ, honoring Christ, glorifying Him in our hearts and in our outward expression. Peter goes on to say, always being prepared to make a defense 
to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Do not fear the people that are persecuting you. Do not fear new governments and new laws and new circumstances that are intended to cause you physical harm, financial harm, emotional harm. Don't fear those things. Instead, prepare yourselves. Be prepared to give a defense. Always being prepared to give a defense. Most of us here, I would venture a guess, believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. We've looked to him for our hope and our salvation. We believe that the Bible is true. We believe that we are saved by Christ's work on the cross and we have repented of our sins. Can you defend that though? That's the question. Do you know why you believe in what you believe? Are you able to give an account for the hope that is in you? So all throughout the beginning of Peter's letter, he's talking about how you should interact with the government, how you should interact with the world around you, how you should interact with, in his letter, he addressed slaves and masters. In our world, we can think how we interact at work with um, our bosses and the companies that we represent. He talks about husbands and wives and how you are to relate to each other. So our relationships with everybody around us should reflect Christ. So the world that is lost and dying and hates Christ, they should look at us in the midst of our suffering and say, how in the world can you have hope in the midst of this? That doesn't make any sense. You've lost a child. You've lost a family member. You've lost your job. You've lost your house. You've lost whatever. People are hating you and mocking you and criticizing you. How in the world can you have hope? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason is what Peter is saying. Live your life for Christ, for righteousness, and as you suffer, be prepared to talk about your faith. Be prepared to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Yet, he continues at the end of verse 15, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. So I went to West Africa for two years um, with the Southern Baptist, with the IMB. Prior to going as part of my training, uh, all of our training was done in Richmond, Virginia. So just a stone's throw away from Washington, D.C., Uh, We took one day, so every missionary that was going, all several hundred of us that were there, uh, we went up to Washington, D.C. with the objective of, okay, find somebody from your country or from the the primary religion of the people that you were going to go minister to, walk around D.C., find them, engage them in conversation, learn about their culture before you go, start trying to interact with them. So I went out with um, some guys, uh, some other single journeyman guys that were going to be going out, and we went out to the mall. So that's the big park with all the, mo- with all the monuments and everything else. And the Hare Krishnas had tables and booths set up. It was a big party for the Hare Krishnas. And so, hey, now I was going to Africa. There weren't any Hare Krishnas where I was, but you know what? 
let's go. Some of these other guys, they were going to the Amazon jungle. There weren't any Hare Krishnas in the middle of the Amazon jungle that they were aware of, but let's go talk to them. So we went and we were talking to them. And one of my friends, David, he went up to the booth uh, where they were selling their holy books, the Bhagavad Gita, if I said that right, and other writings and things. And he was engaging with the woman that was um, selling the book. And I just kind of was listening in on the side. And it was great. He was asking good questions. He was listening. He was paying attention to her. And I could see her opening up. And then he started turning the conversation to the gospel and to the Bible. And she was, because of his gentleness and his respect, she was engaging with him. But then, not a couple of minutes after he started talking about the Bible, I truly believe Satan sent two guys that claimed to be Christians. They went up to her yelling at her, saying, you're going to hell. What you're selling is awful and evil. And they were screaming hellfire and brimstone at her. Immediately, her walls and her, you could see the physical change. Walls and defenses came up and she shut down. And all of that groundwork that he had laid to build a bridge to be able to share the gospel, gone in a heartbeat. Because these two guys decided what this woman needed to hear was that you're an evil person and you're dying and going to hell for believing what you believe in. They did not defend any reason for any hope that was in them with gentleness and kindness and respect. That is what Peter is saying here. Don't be like those guys. When you give a defense for your faith, be gentle, be kind, be respectful. People disagree with you. Be respectful of them as you are disagreeing with them and they're disagreeing with you. Show them kindness. Listen to them. That's what's going to win them over is your attitude, how you are carrying yourself, how you're acting. Why? Continuing in verse 16, so that when you are slandered, not if you are slandered, but when you are slandered, because people will slander you. When you are slandered, those who revile, which goes back in to the Beatitudes that we just read from Jesus, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. There are people that will revile us no matter what we do. If you are like those two guys that are aggressive and angry and unkind and disrespectful, they will revile you for good reason. But if you are disagreeing with them in a respectful and gentle and courteous way, but you are defending the truth and defending the gospel, they will be put to shame ultimately because they can revile you all you want, but your character will shine forth. They may bring false accusations against you, but you will be able to stand against them. Why? Verse 17 answers the question, why? For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. You should care about how you conduct yourself in the world around you, is what Peter is saying. Because it is better to suffer for doing good. So, how we talk to people, how we act towards people, what we say, what we don't say is very important. It all should honor Christ and glorify Christ. So even when we do suffer, we can still glorify Christ in our suffering. 
But notice Peter says, if that should be God's will. He's saying, God may will it that you suffer. Your suffering for righteousness may be a part of God's will. And that's a good thing. And that's an okay thing. And that's something that we should expect. Why should we expect that? Why is that a good thing? Because, verse 18, Peter says, For Christ also suffered once for sins. So this next section is bookmarked with Christ suffering once for sins in verse 18. And then chapter 4, verse 1, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. So everything that we are going to be talking about is centered around Christ's suffering and answering the question, why does God will it? Why is it better to suffer for doing good? Why? Because Christ suffered for sins. If we split this entire passage up into two sections, what we've just talked about, that's what I call the easy section. Now we're getting into the difficult section, the confusing section. So Peter says, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, being Christ, for the unrighteous, being those who are sinful, that he might bring us to God. The purpose of Christ's suffering was to bring us to God, was to save us, was to transform us, to redeem us. Peter is saying, this is your example to follow here. How did Christ do that? Being put to, put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Christ died for the unrighteous. Christ died for sins and rose again from the dead. He was made alive in the spirit, conquering sin and death. And he can bring us to God. Christ suffered, so he is our example to follow. Now, verses 19 through 22. The question is, what in the world is Peter talking about here? And how does it relate to suffering? First question, what is he talking about? I can tell you for certainty, I'm not entirely sure. And I can say it confidently because theologians throughout all of history have said, I'm not entirely sure. Martin Luther himself said, this is a beautiful passage, and I'm not entirely sure what Peter is getting at here. So if Martin Luther, one of the great pillars and founders of the Protestant Reformation, and one of the reasons why we are gathered here in this church today is the groundwork that he laid, if this confused him, it's okay if it confuses us. I have read several different ideas, and I can say that um, even today, the prominent people that we might all know of and respect disagree, and but they do so humbly saying, I lean this way, it might not be this way. So I'm going to tell you, based on reading everything, there are five different prominent views. The way that I tend to lean, I will tell you, and if you want to ask questions afterwards about the other views, we can talk about that. But let's look at this. Verse 19, so in which, so let's read back through 18 and then get into 19. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which, so in the Spirit, in the resurrection, Christ, 
went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Because they formerly did not believe when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So the question is, what did Christ proclaim? And who are these spirits in prison that he proclaimed whatever he proclaimed to? I lean towards in the resurrection, there are spirits, whether they are human spirits or demonic spirits, fallen angels that are locked in prison because they did not obey God. God was sending judgment on the earth in Noah's time, and Noah was building the ark, which took him years to build. If you've ever been up to Cincinnati to the Creation Museum, they have an ark exhibit. They built a life-size scale replica of the ark as best as they could with the information that we have in the Bible. It took them three years to build it with all of our modern technology. They estimate it took Noah anywhere from three years to 70 years to build the ark. That's a long time to be working on a boat with no ocean nearby and all of your neighbors and everybody else mocking you and ridiculing you and making fun of you and you're pouring all of your time and your effort and your energy into and money into something that you can't fully see the full outcome of it yet. Noah faithfully pursued God's will and he was faithful and his whole family was saved because of his faithfulness of pursuing Christ even in the midst of everything that he was going through. So Christ in the resurrection, in the spirit, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. I lean towards the idea that Christ went to those that are in prison and declared his victory over sin and death. In the days of Noah, you didn't believe God's judgment that was coming into the world. And you are in prison of, of that. I went to the cross and died, but now I have been raised again from the dead and I have declared victory over sin and death. And Peter says at the end in verse 22, who Christ has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So based on this, I lean towards that what 19 and 20 is getting at is that Jesus Christ, after he died and rose again, is going and declaring to those who did not believe, whether humans or fallen angels, that he has won. It is finished. The victory is made sure. Now, there are five different views on that. and I could very well be wrong on that based on reading them. From what I've read, that makes the most sense to me, but I hold all of that with open hands. So um, we can talk about that after the service, and I can give you some other places to look um, for that. But um, all of that to say that Christ is victorious over sin and death, and angels and powers and principalities and authorities are subjected to him. Christ won. Christ suffered in the flesh, and Christ won the victory. 
So the ark, let's talk about verse 21 here. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Baptism corresponds to the ark. In verse 20, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. The water is God's judgment over sin. The world was wicked. God was judging the whole world for their sin, for their wickedness, for their vileness, for their disgust, to the point where the scriptures say God regretted making humans because of their wickedness and their sinfulness. And so he poured out his wrath on humanity, except for one family who built an ark and they passed through God's judgment in the ark. Baptism now corresponds to this. Baptism corresponds to passing through God's judgment. Now, this is where it can get fun and tricky. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there are different denominations and different faith traditions that look at this passage and say, you must be baptized in order to be saved. Place your faith in Jesus Christ and then be baptized. Salvation is final there. Boom, we can see it right here. Baptism now saves you. That is not what Peter is getting at here because two reasons. One, he immediately follows it with, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So, Removal of dirt from the body is the act of being cleansed, of being cleaned, of being washed, of being made new. It is not that. So baptism doesn't cleanse you. But baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter is not saying that baptism saves you because he goes on to say, well, okay, real quick. So you make sure I'm, so you make sure you're not, you're not hearing me wrong. It's not like this. But also we know that Scripture doesn't contradict itself. So what one author writes in one letter does not contradict what another author writes in another letter. And we know elsewhere that you are, Paul says in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. So salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And here, Peter is getting at that. Baptism is a symbol. Baptism is a sign, but one that is so closely linked to salvation that it shouldn't be separated as, I can be saved now and go about my life and I don't even have to get baptized. It's a very important sacrament to the church. It's a very important aspect of following Jesus Christ, baptism, because of what it symbolizes. So Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which ties everything back in to Noah and his family passing through the judgment waters of God's wrath and coming out on the other side, delivered from that. Christ is our ark in Christ, we pass through the judgment waters of God's wrath, which he poured out on Christ on the cross, 
So if you place your faith in Jesus Christ and believe in Jesus Christ, you pass through God's judgment because Christ took all of that upon himself on the cross. And so we come out on the other end saved, renewed, transformed, able to walk in newness of life, as the scripture says. So baptism is a symbol of this. Baptism is a sign of this. So when we are baptized, we are declaring to the world a reality that is now true in us, that I once was dead. I once was an enemy of God, and I have passed through his judgment, and I am raised to walk in newness of life. Because, as we've already read, Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Christ suffered for our sins to save us. Christ suffered, and he is our example. Chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What does verses 19 through 22 have to do with suffering? Christ suffered to bring about an outcome, which was your salvation. We are called to follow in Christ's example and to suffer for righteousness' sake for God's glory. So suffering for righteousness' sake, suffering when we pursue Christ and we are faithful to Christ is for God's glory. All of this tied in together. We don't know what the future holds, but we can be certain of one thing. Our salvation is secure. It is accomplished by Christ on the cross. We are adopted into the family of God. We have an inheritance waiting in heaven for us that cannot be taken away. God is securing us with his power so that we can live and we can tell other people about Christ. So that when we suffer, they can look to us and say, I don't understand it. Why do you still have hope? And we can let them know that we have passed through the waters of God's judgment because of Christ and we are saved. So whatever the world does, does to us doesn't matter. They can take our freedoms away they can throw us in jail. They can shut this church down and prevent us from meeting together in an official capacity. And yet it is okay because it is accomplished. No harm can come to us. We have hope because of what Christ has done on the cross. That is what the Christians around the world have been saying for centuries. When persecution strikes a country, the church seems to grow and explode. China has just as many Christians as we do here in the United States. They have some estimates of like 80 million in, in China, which is what the estimates are here in the United States. And they live in a closed country, as we call it. So, always be prepared to give a defense for the hope that is in you. 
knowing that you have passed through the judgment of God's wrath because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Let's pray.